Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're chatting with Aron Sanchez. He's chef, cookbook author, also judge on Chopped and Master Chef. He's well known for his modern approach to Mexican cooking, also for encouraging and promoting Latino chefs. You know, I can't tell you how many times I go to restaurants in all my travels and inevitably, you know, somebody from Latino descent comes from the kitchen and says, can I get a photograph? Can I talk to you, you know, because you represent us. So now the message and the mission has changed so much 
from when I started. Also coming up, we share a recipe for Norwegian salmon. And later on, Dan Pashman defends picky eaters. But first, it's my interview with Robert Simonson, who writes about cocktail spirits, bars, and bartenders for The New York Times. His new book is called The Martini Cocktail. Robert, welcome to Milk Street. Well, thank you. Uh, The Martini Cocktail, a meditation on the world's greatest drink with recipes you write. When a youthful waiter brought you one to your table, you describe it as the cocktail had an unappetizing, lukewarm look to it. It made me shudder. Mustering up a starchy hauteur I didn't know I possessed, I turned to the poor waiter and said, quote, excuse me, but I think this is undrinkable. So for starters, you take martinis uh, seriously. Yes, I I even took them seriously back in uh, 1991 when I really didn't know anything uh, about them. That's when that incident occurred. And uh, I just knew instinctively that um, you should take a martini seriously and you should worry about how it's made. So what was wrong with it? It wasn't cold enough. Yeah, I I watched it get warmer from across the dining room. So um, indeed, when I researched this book, that was one of the uh, main things that I was reminded of, that more than any other cocktail, the martini needs to be ice cold. So uh, I'm an old-fashioned fan, um, and there's the sweet, there's the bitters, the amount of ice, a lot of things to talk about. A martini is a relatively simple concept. Is that why it's such a classic? I think it's a classic in that on the surface it's simple, but within that simplicity there's a lot of complexity. You only have three ingredients. You have gin and vermouth and uh, classically orange bitters, and then you just have the twist to worry about or, or an olive. But people forget that uh, gin is an incredibly complex spirit. Uh, it has many, many botanicals in it, and vermouth is even more complex. So when you put those together, uh, you're tasting a lot of things. Uh, Anytime you have a a, a well-made martini, you're probably tasting 15 or 16 things at once. Hmm. And I think that is part of what keeps people uh, fascinated. So let's assume I'm I'm a uh, beginning bartender. You're giving me a lesson on making the perfect martini. What are the things you absolutely have to do right, and what are the things you absolutely do not want to do wrong? I would say... A couple things that are very important. One is to uh, stir it a long time over ice to get that proper chill. You do want it to be cold, and you also want it to be diluted. This is a very strong drink, so you want it to spend a little time on the ice because water, like every cocktail, is actually part of the recipe. Um, Another thing I would stress that you should stir a martini as opposed to shake it. They'll both end up cold, but there is no reason to shake a martini because uh, there's no citrus in there or there's no milk or egg or anything that's difficult to integrate. It's it's straight alcohol, and you just need to stir it. Uh, let's do the history. So the first time the recipe shows up is probably in the 1880s, something like yes. that. But you have a wonderful chapter about lies, lies, and more lies about origin stories. Could you just take us through some of those uh, fictitious origin stories? Sure. Um, A couple of them have it being born on the West Coast. One says it was born in the town of Martinez, and a lot of people think that the martini evolved from a similar drink called the Martinez. Hmm. Um, And so the city of Martinez says this is how this happened. And then there is another theory that took place in New York City at the Knickerbocker Hotel, which still stands in Times Square. This took place in the 1910s, 
And supposedly the drink got its name because the bartender's first name was Martini. I go into some depth in the book as to why none of these theories actually make any sense. Uh, but they continue to uh, have a life. It's because people don't like a vacuum. You know, they want there to be an origin story of the martini. So the truth is it just sort of arrived in the 1880s in a bartender's manual, but nobody really knows how it got its start. I think it's likely that it was probably invented by a number of bartenders at the same time. The critical ingredient in the early martinis was vermouth. Vermouth was not a common thing in the United States at that point. It was um, imported and drunk in Italian communities in large cities in the United States, but it was not common. Starting in the 1870s and 1880s, we saw a lot more vermouth in the United States. And bartenders have always been very creative people. So when you have a new ingredient, you start putting it with other ingredients and see if you can come up with a new cocktail. You must care deeply about the brand of gin and vermouth. Well, when I make it a martini, I tend to lean towards the uh, London Dry brands that have been around a long time. Labels like Beefeater and Tanqueray and Plymouth Gin and Bombay Gin. If you're spending you know, more than $40 on your bottle of gin, you're, you're probably doing it wrong. And it's even harder to spend a lot of money on vermouth. Ver vermouth is dirt cheap. So would you view me, people like me, who are old-fashioned aficionados, as sort of cocktail knuckle-draggers? <laughs> because it sounds to me like you're saying, and I understand, the martini is a very subtle drink. But when you get to a sugar cube and a bunch of bitters in an old-fashioned, it's not as subtle as the martini. So the martini is at the apex of the pyramid for subtle cocktails? No, no, I would never say that. Um, I actually wrote a, I wrote a book in 2014 called The Old Fashioned, so obviously I have as much affection for the old-fashioned as the martini. And there's, there's nothing, nothing uh, knuckle-dragging about ordering that drink. Uh, there's a lot of sophistication in that drink. Now, someone once told me the Old Fashioned is called the Old Fashioned because it was the original mixed drink. Is that right? The original name for the drink is the Whiskey Cocktail. The Whiskey Cocktail goes back to, uh, like, the late uh, 1700s. And it was just whiskey and bitters and sugar and water. And then, then you flash forward to the 1870s or 1880s, and bartenders are, are trying to improve the drink. And they're putting in a touch of absinthe, putting in a touch of curacao, you know, thinking that they're making a better drink. And the customers got tired of this. And so they started asking for an old-fashioned whiskey cocktail. Huh. Oh, and I didn't know later that. that became abbreviated to just, I'll have an old-fashioned. Oh, that's interesting, because I've, I've, I've heard that rumor for 20 years, and you cleared it up. So, so finally, I go to a bar, and I order mm -hmm. a martini. Do you just order a martini, or do you actually offer more information? You should offer more information, but you don't really have to, because the moment you order a martini, if it's a good bar, you're going to get the questions anyway. The first thing the bartender's going to ask you is gin or vodka. And then he's going to ask you up around the rocks and Oliver Twist because the, the bartender doesn't want to get it wrong and have to make it over again. Right. But when I go into a bar, I just like, you know, I, I cut through all that and I say I'd like a, uh, a gin martini, three to one, up with a twist. It doesn't take much time. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for being on Mill Street. It's been a, a great pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much.
That was Robert Simonson, author of The Martini Cocktail, a meditation on the world's greatest drink with recipes. It's time for my co-host Sarah Moult and I to answer your culinary questions. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also the author of Home Cooking 101. So, Chris, before we take the first call, tell me about your first food memory as a child. My first fascinating food memory, from my point of view, was making, I was eight or nine years old, I baked a chocolate cake with seven-minute icing. It was either out of Joy or it was out of Fanny Farmer. It's one of those classic books we had lying around. We only had three cookbooks in the house at the time. And uh, it was my first real, you know, baking project. How'd it come out? The chocolate cake actually came out pretty well. You know, this was not a box mix. This is all from scratch. And uh, the seven-minute icing, which you know is a little dicey to make, came out like snot. I mean, it it was just like snot. And so, no, I carried on, you know, unperturbed, as Julia would do, iced the cake and brought it out. And this is a great case of why there are times when parents should lie to their children. Because it started my career, really. I mean, my parents had a great cake and everything else. And I was so proud of myself. And that actually was what is a moment when I really thought, you know, I really like baking and cooking. Uh, and if they'd said, look, what is this snot on this chocolate cake? I, I'd be an accountant. Today. Yeah. Oh, so, dear. Well, yeah. that's a good story. See, so lie or, or a white lie sometimes is, is just a good fine. Thing. Yeah. It's a good thing. Well. Okay. Let's take some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Emily from Virginia Beach. Hi, Emily. How can we help you today? Well, I was wondering if you had any suggestions for making just a really wonderful homemade ketchup. My um, father-in-law's birthday is coming up, and he loves ketchup. I can't emphasize that enough. So I thought that would be a great thing to get for him because he is a man who has everything. So if you had any suggestions, that would be great. Well, I do have some suggestions. I'm I'm just concerned about one thing, which is, as somebody who is a ketchup lover myself, I used to drink it out of the bottle when I was a kid, literally. We don't know everything they put in it, but we do know they put tomatoes, sugar in some form. I think it could be corn syrup, um, vinegar, salt, spice. But I think we sort of like ketchup the way it tastes. It's one of those silly things. So you're going to make something that's going to be probably much more designer and much more interesting and probably much more depth of flavor and probably much less sweet. Are you sure he's still going to like it? That was going to be my follow-up. Maybe simple is better. (laughs) Well, let me just say that at this time of year, I would go with canned tomatoes, Italian plum canned tomatoes that you would use to make a really nice tomato sauce, and also some tomato paste as well to boost it. Chop them up, uh, cook them with some onion and garlic, and then take a bunch of spices, put them into um, cheesecloth, tie it up and put it in so you can lift it out easily. But cinnamon, allspice, cloves, peppercorns, mustard seeds, and just simmer it for a bit with some a little bit of brown sugar, a little bit of cider vinegar. I think there's a good recipe on Epicurious. And then remove the uh, cheesecloth bag of spices, puree the whole thing, and then see what the consistency looks like. And if it's not thick enough, then simmer it down. And don't forget the salt. Years ago, someone who worked for me worked on a homemade ketchup recipe. And Mm -hmm. I distinctly remember this is one of the few times when we just failed. There's certain products that actually are ideal in their natural supermarket state. People become addicted. Yeah, or or Angostura bitters. I mean, there's just a few things that there's really no point. I guess the question is, 
is there something else he loves in food like vinegar? Is there some other product you could make homemade where you could actually make something better than store-bought or, or is ketchup his one and only condiment of choice? Ketchup is his funny thing. Okay. He'll get it out of steakhouse even and we just tease him about it. But well, that's okay too. Look, I would just make it. It's not going to be the same as what comes in the bottle. But the It'll fact be that you took the time. You. So the fact that you went to all this trouble to research, I think is terrific. I mean, it's a great Aww. gift. I would just do it. If it's not perfect, who cares? You took the effort. Yeah, I think it shows love. Yes. And that's what matters. I think that's right. <laughs> One thing before we go, I do remember sure. cloves was an essential element in the recipe. And okay. I think she actually steeped cloves in oil or something to get that flavor. So when you do it, I think that was the one thing we found, that cloves were kind of a key ingredient. But, you know, just make it and he'll love it. Just do it. Okay. Good for That's you. awesome. Thank you guys so All right. much. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Mike. Hey, Mike, where are you calling from? Traverse City, Michigan. Okay. How can we help you? Several months ago, I bought a Zinner butcher that I wasn't familiar with, and they had what they called a dairy tenderloin, three and a half pounds in a cryovac sealed wrapping. Yeah. You know, so I asked the butcher, is this any good? And he says, well, that's what we use to make our kebabs. And the neat thing was it was like $8 a pound. So three and a half pounds, 30 bucks, brought it home, cut it up, and used about a pound and a half to make kebabs, marinated it in a Mediterranean mix, hot grill to medium rare, and went to eat it, anticipating, you know, a great you know, <laughs> meal. And, and it wasn't. <laughs> well, that's why I'm calling. <laughs> you know, it ended up having a livery, yep. liver taste texture. Shocking. I mean, a dairy cow's four or five years old. She stopped producing milk. Or older. Uh, and then they're sent off to the slaughterhouse because there's money in that. Uh, compare that to an 18-month-old or maybe two-year-old, but fairly young, uh, let's say Angus or something else, beef cattle. They are grained up in the last few months. Their diet's better. Uh, they're younger. Uh, the breed is better for meat than a dairy cow, which is bred for milk production. So basically, it's totally different meat. Traditional beef, the majority of it in this country is finished the way Chris explained, yep. with grain, which is not really all that normal for that animal. Right. But it gives it, it fattens it up. It, I, I think uh, beef finished with grain tastes better than pure grass-fed anyway. Grass-fed is going to be a little stronger. Well, that's that's where right. I'm going with this. I think dairy cows are grass-fed. so Silage-fed, yeah. Yeah. You know what? You might want to have this conversation with your butcher. Yeah. What I wanted to say was one way to get around livery taste, which we used to do when I worked in a restaurant with venison, was to soak it in milk. Okay. Like overnight. Can I make a suggestion? I, I think you should buy, like go to Costco or one of those places Get a tenderloin and then buy his dairy beef tenderloin and just do a taste Side off. by side. Yeah, and I think you'll see a huge difference. Well, I think he already has, yeah. clearly. I mean, I, I yeah. think it's just because it's a dairy cow versus beef cattle. Right. Yeah. One last thing. The round, in my opinion, it always tastes livery. I don't like. I don't like the round. Yeah. I think it's just it's dairy meat. And yeah. That's just not going to be great. And, and grain, finishing with grain really does make a better 
product. So g- finishing with grain is a better solution yes. than all it's grass. It's not good for the environment, I, though. I, I've raised my own beef, Angus, and I've raised them fully grass-fed and then finished with grain. I can tell you the fully grass-fed is tougher and stronger. It's an acquired taste. Definitely. I will agree. Yeah. It's definitely a different taste. But so, I would just stay away from the dairy beef. Or if you do it, soak it in milk overnight. So next time I'm in the area, I will quiz the butcher. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. Mike. Thanks for calling. Very interesting topic. I appreciate your help. Thanks. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, please give us a call, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Maxine. Hi, Maxine. Where are you calling from? Bridgeport, Connecticut. I'm uh, originally from Rhode Island, and we always had, probably not very good, but brown bread in cans, along with the B&M baked beans in cans when I was growing up. And I really wanted to make it. And I opened up recipes recently, and they all call for a one-pound coffee can. And I went looking for that and realized... Coffee doesn't come in one-pound cans anymore. So I started to hunt for a substitute, but I was wondering what you would suggest. I've actually made this recipe a few times. We uh, should explain to everybody but brown it's bread It's a steamed is. bread. It's and a, it's sweet. It's a it's sweet. It has molasses. molasses and raisins. Yes, yeah. and it's got a mix of flours. It's quite good. It's very moist. You could use, there's lots of 14-ounce cans out there. Tomatoes come in 14-ounce cans, lots of other things. Coconut milk. Right. Uh, you could use probably three of those would probably work. You might use a 28-ounce can of tomatoes. That would probably work as well. You could probably Uh even steam it in a regular loaf pan. I don't know what the size of the pan would be, depending on your recipe, but a loaf pan would probably work. But I would try three 14-ounce cans. That probably would do it. Then you have three cute little mini (laughs) brown (laughs) breads, you know? I mean, you know. Well, what about a pudding mold, a good old-fashioned pudding mold? Yeah. Yeah. I just did buy, because I, I got in this kick of making Turkish coffee, and you buy ground coffee for that. And I hmm. did buy a can of ground Italian coffee. Was it a pound, though? It looked like it was about that size, and I think it was a metal can. It was a yellow metal can. I think they might exist out I, there. I think they do. They're just not a pound. So if you're working with a smaller can, you have to figure out how much less you're going to add since you're steaming it. Well, the 14 ounces will do it. I think there's actually a recipe you can get for that on Serious Eats. You know, search for it on Serious Eats. I think there is a recipe for that. And I also, when I was fooling around with recipes, I tried to make it in the Instant Pot, and it was fabulous. It worked great there. Just 45 minutes on high pressure. And That's it, good to and know. And was, was it in a can in the Instant Pot? Yeah. I tried it in a one-quart Pyrex baking dish, and that was fine, but I didn't like the shape. So then I... You know, just like you said, started fooling around with vegetable cans, different sizes. Well, good. But the Instant Pot was just 45 minutes, you know, instead of two, two hours. hours yeah, we, we just did a book of recipes for the Instant Pot. And at first, everyone in the kitchen was like, come on, we don't really want to do this, you know. And at the end of the project, we all just fell in love with it. So, really? You know, we actually made pasta in the Instant Pot. I'm going like, this is nuts. What's the time savings? Yeah. But I've done it's, that, too. I've made good. everything in it. You know, it, it's a slow cooker. It's a pressure cooker. It also sautés in it. You know, it's, it's, it's better slices, to have a skill on a stovetop. But you can do everything in it, and it forces you to organize your meal prep. And it's pretty good. So huh. I'm a convert. All right. All right. 
Maxine, thank you so much. Thank you, Maxine. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we chat with Chef Aaron Sanchez. That and more after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are. And I think 
that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Chef Aron Sanchez is well known for his appearances on MasterChef and Chopped, as well as for his restaurant in New Orleans, Johnny Sanchez. His new memoir is Where I Come From, Life Lessons from a Latino Chef. Aaron, welcome to Milk Street. Well, thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. You know, I really loved your book for a lot of reasons, but one of them is there's a theme in here, a subtext about death. Um, you lost your father when you were 13. You want to tell us a little bit about him because he sounded like a, a pretty interesting guy. Yeah, he was he was well uh, ahead of his time. He was from a town called Valentine, Texas, which I think in its heyday probably had a total of 200 people. His mother, my grandmother, was uh, of American Indian descent. She actually was illiterate. And uh, his father, Francisco, he actually had worked on the railroad, on, on trains for about 50 years, doing everything from laying track to actually working on the trains themselves. So to say they came from humble means is maybe even an understatement. Right. Um, but the fact that he excelled and decided to move to the big city at that time, which was El Paso, Texas, to go seek out higher education and make for a better life, um, I think says a lot about who he was. And, you know, he was... Very soft-spoken, but had enormous amounts of presence and stature. And those summers with him in El Paso were just magical. Your mother uh, was different in some ways. She had a catering business, uh, mm-hmm. packed you in a van in 1984, drove to New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she had an interesting way of, of making She talked about getting to know the right people, giving parties. Tell us a little bit about her. Yeah. You know, my mom has always been someone that is extremely ambitious and very, very focused on what her goals are and what she wants to get accomplished. She always wanted to have her name in lights. So I think she started cultivating her love for food at the ranch and started to think, you know what? People are interested in our food. They're interested in my story. And she knew better enough to get the most influential people in a room and have them remember her name. That's what she would always say to us. Hmm. And um, and that's the still that's still the advice I give to young people nowadays who want to get their name out there. You know, make a short list of people that are movers and shakers in the industry. You know, send them some food or invite them over to your house and cook for them and ingratiate yourself to them. And then that's how you'll start to you'll start to be known. So there's a point in your book I really like. You were filming. Uh, it was in Oaxaca. It was Dia de los Muertos. You, at night, climbed up a hill with some mm. camera equipment. And it wasn't so much about the food, but it was the notion that they came to you at the time 
that the dead, the people who have passed, are, are still with us. Absolutely. You know, I think part of being Mexican and growing up that way is that, you know, I'm very clear in the book that uh, death is not a somber occasion. It's, it's something to be celebrated. So going and rediscovering this chapter of my culture in, in Oaxaca and understanding that it's okay, you know, to, to have someone go and they're going to still be with you and then you can hang on to the best parts of them. I thought that was something so insightful and very provocative for me at a time when, you know, I wasn't necessarily really developed yet. Well, you recount in in painful detail <laughs> those years when you're trying to get your act together. And you, yep. you, at 16, you go down and, and cook for Chef Prudhomme. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were a couple great stories. You you made a, a vinegar badly. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I love I love it when you were messing up and and the chef came up and said, "What's her name?" <laughs> I yep. just you want to tell that yep. story. That's a great story. Yeah, well, I think if if we're talking a little bit about death being a reoccurring theme, I think me and my pursuit of women throughout my life <laughs> is also another recurring theme. <laughs> Anytime I ever really got distracted was because I was chasing a girl. And in this case, you know, this is pre-cell phones, pre-all of that. So you would essentially meet somebody on the street and you would say, look, I will meet you here at the same time tomorrow when I get done. And uh, maybe we can carry on getting to know each other better or whatever. And I was very excited to see this young girl that I'd met the day prior. And I circumvented fixing a sauce or a vinegar to go and see this girl on time. I wanted to be prompt because I didn't want that opportunity to get away from me. So Chef Paul caught me on my BS. He made me do it over again. And he knew the motivation was trying to go see a girl. So from that moment on, I never took a shortcut in the kitchen ever again. It, it give us some idea of what that's what that work is like because I for someone who's never worked in a kitchen the hours and the, the amount of prep mm. I mean it's brutal you're opening shrimp all day you're you're chopping onions give us some sense of what that's like yeah I mean for anybody that wants to get into our industry and understand it it's not a glamorous one to say the least you're going to be asked to do manual tasks you're going to be asked to do things that seem repetitive and redundant but I, I can say wholeheartedly there's a reason behind all of that. I loved it. I thought the pressure of the kitchen and being part of this group of people that were misfits and and, and sort of this pirate crew, I thought it was so cool. And I never shied away from hard work. So for me, it, it, it seemed like something completely natural. But it's it's tough and not it's not for everybody. So tell me about your restaurant, Johnny Sanchez. Tell me about your food. We know where you came from in terms of food, but where are you now in terms of how you cook? Yeah. You know, when I was a younger chef in, in my early, mid-20s, I had this, this grandiose ideas of maybe reinterpreting Mexican cuisine, like very much what uh, Enrique Olivera is doing at Cosme and, you know, all these really sort of avant-garde Mexican chefs who have made the trip north of the border and setting up shop here in the States. And then, you know, kind of went and started feeling comfortable in my own lane and understanding, you know, I came up with some really iconic dishes that really spoke to my style. And then as I started to accumulate this following and have this repertoire of dishes, I started to understand that, you know what, it's not about trying to create something new every night and try to push the creative envelope necessarily, you got to remember that you're a businessman as well. So I think Johnny Sanchez, I wanted this restaurant to be a Mexican restaurant that celebrated Louisiana ingredients. 
but it's not a fusion restaurant. So we're not putting a Louisiana dish right next to a Mexican dish. So that's really the essence of the restaurant. It's fun. It's vibrant. You know, we have a strong emphasis on tacos. But coming back to full circle, like, you know, I talked about a little bit of that idea of having big kind of elegant Mexican food. And now I'm, I'm more attracted to like my grandmother's cooking and bringing it full circle. Yeah, it's, it's sort of, I guess, early on in your career, you're going somewhere, but you're not there. Mm-hmm. And as you get older, you've actually get there and you like where you are. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, to be honest, I never thought where I am now and all the different things that, that I've been very blessed to do was going to be a result of just cooking. You know, my dream always was to have my own restaurant, be the captain of my own ship and be able to cook the food that, that spoke to me. Now, you know, I'm I'm this Latino representative of every cook in the kitchen in America. You know, I can't tell you how many times I go to restaurants in all my travels and inevitably, you know, somebody from Latino descent comes from the kitchen and says, can I get a photograph? Hmm. Can I talk to you? You know, because you represent us. So now the message and the mission has changed so much from when I started. Uh Books have been written recently about the end of the second American restaurant revolution. And now people say, gee, you know, it's gotten so expensive and it's hard to find good people. And uh, mm-hmm. it's just a hard, hard business. Uh, what do you say to that? <laughs> I mean, we can do a whole other podcast just on this. But um, um, I remember R.W. Apple, you know, the great, right. the great writer for the Times. And, you know, he would, he said something very funny. He was like... You know, you never met bigger complainers than restaurateurs, hmm. you know, or chefs. Because we, we're, we're not busy because it's Rosh Hashanah or, or, or whatever. Hmm. You know what I mean? It's like we have the marathon. And he said, just cook delicious food and people will come. But, you know, the biggest shift I saw in just, you know, when I started out, you can go to, you know, a realtor and see a fledgling restaurant that had what you would call FF&E, furniture, fixtures, and equipment. And you would have all these nuts and bolts already in the restaurant and you, you can make your own little sort of world happen. But now the problem is that those restaurants that once were, were restaurants are being demolished and turned into a Chase Bank or turned into a Dwayne Reed pharmacy. So if you're a young cook that wants to strike out on your own, you need enormous capital and resource. And isn't the restaurant business a fairly, you know, quote unquote, low margin business? Isn't it kind of hard to get your nut back? with that kind of investment? Yeah, it's extremely difficult because what's happened is a corporatization of restaurants. So now you have big restaurant groups taking over the little guys and, you know, at at your best, at your best, you're taking 6% profit home in your pocket. You know what I mean? It really is a passion project. It's not something that you can necessarily get rich at very quickly. So... You've been enormously successful. You had a hard start, like a lot of people have in this industry. Uh, what's next? Well, we're going to continue to cultivate the Aron Sanchez Scholarship, which is my nonprofit, my opportunity to plant seeds for the for the next crop of, of Latino chefs that really want to carry the torch. I guess the next project that I'm very excited about, really sort of wanting to do, is maybe like a food and wine festival that's featured just Latino talent. So bringing those cooks Hmm. from Oaxaca 
up to the states and giving them the platform that they deserve and really bringing in those those very specific, very cultural dishes that need to be known about. So I really want to bring that to the masses. The co-host of this show is, as you know, Sarah Moulton. And, and of course. Uh, you had a great line about Sarah. You were thrilled to meet her years ago. You said, in fact, Sarah could have been your mom if your mom was mm-hmm. a food TV star and one of the most important professionals of her generation. So I, I was kind of touched by that because uh, you recognized how important she's been in the food world. Absolutely. I, I hold her in the same esteem as someone like Alice Waters, a Nancy Silverton, of my mom, these very, very iconic women that really change the way people think and feel about food. And Sarah is somebody that always, since I was young, always really just brought me into her warmth. Right. You know, she is just, her presence and her humbleness and her unbelievable ability to make things taste delicious has always been a huge source of inspiration. And, you know, women feature so prominently in this book, all these women who have played such pivotal roles in my life. Aaron, it's been uh, a real pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank you. You are a scholar and a gentleman, and I appreciate the time (laughs) and interest. Thank you so much. That was Chef Aaron Sanchez. His memoir is Where I Come From, Life Lessons from a Latino Chef. You know, avoiding shortcuts is Aaron Sanchez's most important life lesson. There simply is no substitute for hard work. But that phrase, hard work, is often misunderstood. It's really not your job or your kids or your chores. It's what you choose to do beyond the routine. It's what pushes you above and beyond. Margaret Mead once said, I learned the value of hard work by working hard. That's not just good advice for a chef. It's good advice for life. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Norwegian Salmon. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, one of our editors just got back from Oslo, not me. just like to point that out. Uh, and he had a dish, salmon, that was fabulous and incredibly simple. Now, we've done salmon a dozen different ways over the years, but this was better, as I said, simpler. It's salted and then cooked for just six or seven minutes. So we brought the recipe back. How did we get started? So the salt is the key here. We took a two-pound center-cut piece of salmon. We rubbed together some kosher salt with some fresh dill, and we rub that in our hands just to kind of break down the dill. Dill is pretty delicate, so you can do that by hand. And coat the fish with the salt mixture and put it in the refrigerator for about an hour. And that denatured the protein, which means it tightened up the protein of the fish. So when you tasted it side by side with a piece that was not salted, the piece that was salted was firmer, had a much better texture. It was really very noticeable. Right, which kind of allows you to cook it a little bit less. So this goes in a 350 oven. It cooks for a little over 10 minutes because it's a pretty big piece of salmon. And then we take it out of the oven and cover it with foil, tent it with foil to lock in some of that heat to continue cooking for about eight more minutes. And is that it? Is it served with a sauce of any kind or you're done? It's really super simple and delicious. We serve it with some extra fresh dill, some lemon wedges, and some really great quick pickled cucumbers. The balance between the fatty fish and these tangy cucumbers is really 
something I'd never thought of, but it, it works so well. So this goes into the category of old dog new tricks, which is there is a better way to cook salmon. <laughs> exactly. So Norwegian salmon, it's salted, it sits, uh, goes into an oven for about 10 minutes, and it has a lovely flavor. And the dill also goes great with it. Thank you. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for Norwegian salmon at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman makes a case for picky eaters. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moult and I will be taking a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? 
Hello, this is Ashley from Ohio. How are you? I am doing wonderful. I'm so excited to talk with you two today. Well, let's see if we can help you. So uh, what's the problem? So my mom and I have had this family recipe for pumpkin rolls since I can remember. But the problem that we come across every year is cracking. And I've tried so many different solutions, and I just can't figure out how to get it to stop cracking when I unroll it to put the cream back inside. So I was wondering if you had any advice. So we're talking about a cake roll here, right? Yes, a cake roll. Do you try to roll it up pretty much soon as it comes out of the oven, or do you let it sit first? I used to let it sit, and that was the first solution I tried. So I will bake it for about 15 minutes, and then I pull it out, and I've started to – I used to flip it, but now I don't even flip it out. I just roll it right in that parchment, and then I let it cool. Okay. Check. Number two, you're using all-purpose flour or cake flour? I've used all-purpose flour. You might try cake flour because most cake rolls often call for cake flour because it's lower gluten and might be more mm-hmm. flexible and easier to roll. Ooh, okay. The last is you might add an extra egg or so. Eggs will make okay. a more pliable cake roll, less prone to cracking because there's more fat in it. And go that to cake flour great. and that might – I mean, I love cake rolls and uh, – you're right. This is a little tricky, but if you do those two things, you're doing the right thing by rolling it up right away. But cake flour mm-hmm. and add an egg. Sarah? I don't know what's wrong here, but I completely agree. What? I know. You're right. Stop the presses. <laughs> we have agreement here at Milk Street. Hey, Ashley, you've made us this agree. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we try that, but it sounds like a great sounds yummy. recipe. Yeah. Mm. What's the filling? Oh, yeah. Um, I do a cream cheese powdered sugar filling inside, and it's so good, mm. and it tastes great, but now I want it to look as great as it tastes. I hear mm. you. Well, hopefully that'll work. Will you let us know? Yes. I can't wait to try it. It'll taste good either way, so I will happily make more. Okay, okay good. Take care. Yes. Bye-bye. You too. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for calling. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, we may, in fact, have the answer. Give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Madeline. How are you? Where are you calling from? I'm doing well. I'm calling from Somerville. How can we help you? So I was wondering if you knew anything about the flavor compounds in maple syrup and maple sugar being affected by high heat during baking. Which are you talking about, maple syrup or maple sugar or both? I was assuming there might be something common to both because I have made two different kinds of cookies and once used all maple syrup as the sweetener and then once used all maple sugar. And while baking, I could smell maple and like the raw batter sort of tasted like maple, but the final product didn't have any sort of maple flavor. You know, if you use maple syrup in a pie, for example, we just did a brown butter maple pie with a baker from Portland, Maine, and it was phenomenal and had a tremendous amount of maple flavor. I wonder whether when you smell chocolate, you're cooking a chocolate cake, for example, baking a cake, when you start to smell chocolate in your kitchen, it is true you're losing the volatiles from the cake and the cake's going to have less chocolate flavor. So it may be that in a dry application like a cookie, the maple does essentially, the volatiles burn off and you don't have much flavor residually. With eggs and other things, maybe that actually bakes up differently. Because I know in a pie, for example, maple syrup will be very strongly flavored. What kind of maple syrup did you use? It was maybe A, which I think... 
Yeah, it doesn't have a ton of maple. The trouble is, in the old days, they had A, B, and they even had C. And A was at the beginning of the mapling season, and it's the lightest of the maple syrups. These days, they have four levels of A, the one that you might want to look to cook with. And I still don't know if it would dissipate in a dry application. It should look black. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it should be really dark yeah. and really strong. You know, it's it, dark amber is the darkest one. It's the darkest and the uh, maple syrup that's harvested at the very end of the season. It's not necessarily in the season, although what happens is there's more bacteria in the lines. The trees are coming back to life. And that's that bacteria, that's the other stuff in the sap mm-hmm. is what's actually making the syrup darker, at least one of the reasons. But I, I think there's another thing going on here, which is if you smelled maple in your kitchen— during baking, there obviously was maple flavor there. So I think there's something about dry baking versus pie where you retain the flavor better and you get less burn off of the volatiles. But Sarah's absolutely right. Buy the darkest colored syrup you possibly can for the most flavor. We need to test this. I think in cookies, you're just not going to get much maple flavor because it's going to burn off. I think also the um, the maple sugar ones really didn't have anything. And the ones no. with syrup, which is a little more moisture, did have some amount of flavor. Yeah. Well, so, maple sugar I, probably has less maple, maple in it. flavor than in maple it. syrup yeah. per tablespoon is yeah. my guess, too. It's more concentrated in the syrup. I was thinking a pie, the internal temperature, it might not get as high. Well, that's true. The pie would be about 155 degrees internal by the time you're done, and baking's going to get much hotter than that. That's an, would you excellent. like a job at Milk yeah, Street? Really? That was excellent. Madeline, you go. Man. Woo-woo. We should call her next time we have her. I know, really. But <laughs> no, meanwhile, good. we'll get back to you with an answer. Great call. Thank you, Madeline. Yes, thank you, Madeline. Thank you so much. I think you hit on the answer. Thanks. Okay. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Lindsay, and here is my tip. I use tamarind concentrate, which you can find in an Indian or Asian grocery store, to braise meat. It's really great with tomatoes and just add a couple of tablespoons of tamarind um, while braising the meat, and it adds a really nice, sharp tang, like a hint of a molassesy flavor. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's regular contributor Dan Pashman. Dan, how are you? I'm good, Chris. You sound good. How old are your young ones now, Chris? My son is a year and nine months, uh, Oliver. This is a pop quiz. I'm just testing to see if you know. It has nothing to do with our segment, And, and do I know their names? <laughs> yeah. And Ricky is just turned nine months. Okay. So two and a half and nine months. So is the two and a half year old starting to exhibit signs of picky eating? No. Uh, he's always been a picky eater. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was it wasn't a development issue. It was just born with. Now he won't even. He'll just reject it out of hand. If it comes within three feet of him and it doesn't look right, right? No, not happening. And um, were your other kids? Like, I guess picky eating something that has frustrated you with, with other children of yours. Well, I, I have six kids, and I, I have to say, none of them are particularly adventurous eaters. I'd say my my second oldest daughter was actually a professional baker for a while. And, and she's, she's quite adventurous. We, we took a trip years ago to Morocco and 
she's the one who ate the calves' brain. Right. <laughs> so, so I, I would say out of six so far, I have one. Okay. So I, I bring this up, Chris, because you know I, I have two kids: nine-year-old Becky and six and a half-year-old Emily, and they are they're very different from each other. But you know, as a parent of young kids, as I'm sure you know, a lot of parents get stressed about picky eating. Uh, well, I, I actually I have to say just to interject Please. here. I never did. I, my, my attitude was we cook one dinner. I mean, unless they're two years old, but once they're of an age, six or seven, we cook one dinner. If you don't like it, have fruit. You know, we always had apples and pears, et cetera, in the house. And you could have fruit for dinner or have what we're having for dinner. But there wasn't – I didn't worry that they'd starve to death. Uh, and if the children were not happy with those two choices, who had to deal with the brunt of that situation? There was no situation. Okay. So that, so that <laughs> worked every there time. There were two choices. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I don't believe in – we're not catering five different dinners every night. Right. I mean the, the, the idea of, of catering, unless there's a nut allergy or something, of course, uh, is a fairly modern notion. Back in the day, there was always a dinner, right? Right. No, for sure. I mean I sort of have a lifelong dream to be a short-order cook. I, I like the idea of like cranking out a bunch of different stuff in the kitchen, so I actually don't mind it You know, like on the weekends when I have the time. But I know that a lot of parents get stressed about picky eating kids. And so it's something that I've been exploring recently, and I found, I've learned a couple of very interesting facts. Okay. First of all, by some estimates, half of all kids are picky eaters, in particular between the ages of three and six. And so it, if it's half, does that even mean that they're picky, or does that just mean that they're normal? And, and there's research that it may take 30 or 40 tastes of a food for a child to acquire a taste for it and learn to like it. Hmm. I think often what happens is, you know, a kid tries something once or twice, they don't like it, and the parent says, oh, well, scratch that off the list. I mean, I, did, I would not bite into a plain tomato until I was about 35. <laughs> this, is, this is a very deep, dark secret, Dave. Are you sure you want to, I'm letting it, want to put that out of the we've gotten to that point in our relationship, Chris, where I'm comfortable enough sharing this with you. I, I won't tell anybody. <laughs> so, so, so you're suggesting that parents, in order to overcome picky eating— keep recycling those items that have been rejected initially because well, they might actually... The, the, yes. First of all, keep coming back to certain things, trying them over and over again. It may, it may take a long time. That, that, that makes sense. But, yeah. but the larger note here is, first of all, relax. Yes. As long as the doctor says that your child is getting enough nourishment and growing appropriately, there's really nothing for you to worry about. It's very common for kids to have a narrow range of things they like to eat when they're young. And in fact, think about it, Chris, it makes good evolutionary sense. I mean, you know, the kids who are frolicking through the woods and just eating whatever berry dropped in front of them, those kids weren't going to last very long. The, the, the kids who are more, more naturally a little bit suspicious of new, of new and unfamiliar foods and only ate the things that they knew they liked and that were safe, those kids were more likely to survive and thrive. That's true. That's probably true. But the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about, Chris, and I'd like to get your take on it, is I know that parents... You may not feel this way, Chris, because I know you are immune to the judgment of others. But <laughs> some some parents feel judged that there that there's an idea that they're doing something wrong if their kids don't eat all different things. And and by the flip side, there seems to be this idea that like you know you, I I will see parents whose kids eat many different things kind of bragging about it as if they've somehow like succeeded as parents. Here's my take on parenting. I don't think you can really take credit or blame. I mean, unless you do something extraordinarily wonderful or, or stupid for the success or failure of your kids. I, I think you have to accept the kids the way they are, accept yourself the way you are. And if they become picky eaters, well, they certainly have an opportunity to not do that. I think 
you put in front of them as many different things as possible and, and just relax. I mean, they're, they're going to turn out, you know, at the end of the day. Well, and that, that's the interesting thing about picky eating. I mean, I have two kids, same two parents, raised in the same household, you know, with the same food being served. One of them will eat just about anything you put in front of her. One of them only yeah. wants mac and cheese. Sure. It's not your fault, Dan. Thank you, Chris. This, is, this has been a great session. Dan, repeat after me. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. This is a good turning into Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> Finally, I'm giving Dan Pashman advice. Dan Pashman, thank you so much. Uh, love your kids, and don't worry about the fact they may be picky eaters, right? Take That's care. right. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman of The Sporkful. Earlier in the show, I spoke with Robert Simonson, author of The Martini Cocktail, and he made me think of the famous Harry Craddock. He was the bartender at London's Savoy Hotel in the 1920s. He also authored the famous Savoy cocktail book with over 700 recipes, which included the bunny hug, a mix of whiskey, gin, and absinthe. Craddock quipped about that drink, quote, it should immediately be poured down the drain before it's too late. Those, I guess, were the days when cocktails and humor went together. You know, Nick Charles, the thin man and also cocktail jokester, was once asked by his on-screen wife, Nora, if he was packing. As he downed yet another martini, he said, quote, Yes, dear, I'm just packing away this liquor. Now that's my idea of adult entertainment. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the new season of our television show, browse our online store, or order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, Recipes That Will Change the Way You Cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH, Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Cindy Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubup Crew. Additional music by George Brennell Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.